0: FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to Castaway and it's our final podcast of the year. 2020 is a year that's definitely going to have a terrible low budget film named after it. (laughs) Uh, But we are going to be finishing with a flurry and a special Christmas themed episode. We're going to go through our usual markets, our usual update for markets, and then we're going to have the 12 commodities of Christmas to end the year. So we've got Kerry and Tom back with us. Thank you for joining us again, guys.
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, Kerry. we
0: are going to go right, straight in. What news brought us this week? Well, Joe Biden was confirmed as president-elect by the Electoral College vote. Brexit negotiations were extended again with no agreement still in sight. EU threatened tech giants with action unless they cleaned up their act. UK unemployment rate rose 4.9% in the three months to October. Germany implemented a tough Christmas lockdown to combat growing virus cases there. A new variant of COVID-19 was discovered and is behind much of the growth of cases in the south of England. Alibaba was fined by the Chinese regulator over past deals as China started to turn tough on tech. Sudan was removed from the US state sponsor terror blacklist. The UK government are drawing up plans to rival Singapore as a major shipping hub with a post-Brexit shipping regime. Australia is taking China to the WTO over barley tariffs of 80%. And the US lawmakers are inching closer to uh, an agreement on a further US stimulus package. Right, let's go into our indexes. This is Tuesday the 8th versus Tuesday the 15th. And we start with you, Kerry. What have we seen in the indexes on freight?
2: A pretty big jump. The Cape Size 5 TC average at $13,128. That's up 2521 or 23.7% week-on-week. Week. The Panamax 4 TC at $12,079. That is up $1,320 or 12.3% week-on-week.
0: Week. And Tom, what about the iron ore indexes? Uh,
2: another crazy week. Yeah. Uh... So
1: on the 62% platz index, uh, we were at $149.95 a week ago uh, and trading at $155.75 at index yesterday. On the high-grade 65%, the fast markets index, uh, that was at $161.45 last week and we are now at $166.75, so 3.87% and 3.28% respectively.
0: Thank you, Tom. Uh, and on oil and uh, related products, Brent, we've seen rise 3.93% and now above 50, uh, 50.76 closed yesterday. Singapore, 3.80, up 4.78%. Now 2.9880, very close to that 300 mark. Rotterdam, 3.5%, the high sulfur fuel oil 280, up 4.19%. Uh, the 0.5 equivalents, 3.7679 closing for the sing point five up 2.73% and up 4.4% on the Rotterdam 05 to 367.75 and on the sing high five that's the difference between the low and high sulfur fuel oils they have uh, dropped in singapore from 8161 to 77.96 and on the rock high five there's been an increase of 5.12 percent to 87.75 and on the tankers tc2 we've seen pop up six and a half percent now closing 84.72 tc5 is up 30.75 percent 118.57 closing yesterday TD3C has dropped marginally, one and a half percent, from 3413 to 3365, and TD25 is up seven percent, up just above 50 to 5083 closing. Right, what are the points we're going to see on the reasoning for all these index moving? Uh, Tom, Ore, another positive week for for both both grades. What are we seeing?
1: Uh... Well, I mean, if you'd asked me a couple of days ago as well, the uh, index would have been even higher than we were reporting. Uh, so we got up to um, 160.70 on the 62% on the 10th. So, you know, it's it's cooled a little bit, um, but it's been uh, absolutely bonkers. We were talking last week about market investigations due to some potential manipulation and that sort of exacerbating market movements at the moment. Uh, and the price action since then has been no less uh, hard to justify. Um, We've even had CESA, so the Chinese Steel Association, uh, has been holding talks with Rio Tinto uh, questioning why the iron ore price is so high, why physical transactions are so high, um, which amid the background of already fairly tense um, Australia China political relations, it's, its I think, been a fairly uh, difficult conversation for everyone involved. Um, there's also been a bit of sort of unrecognized supply tightness, as Rio announced to the market that the suspension of the mine that they destroyed the native sites at earlier this year was not included in production targets, whereas everyone... Uh, had been thinking that it was in production targets. Um, so there's been a little bit of supply-side talk as well, but really it's uh, it's a, but just outrageous. steel demand still flowing through. No seasonal slowdown like we would have been expecting. There definitely seems to have been some funny business, I suppose, going on in the market uh, that, that is hard to justify. You've seen SGX and DCE both increase uh, their margin requirements on the iron ore contract so on the DCE now bearing in mind how much higher it is now than it was at the start of the year you've got to post 15% initial margin on any trade Uh, plus in China there's a 3% markup from your clearing brokers. so 18% margin to trade one tonne of iron ore uh, when it's trading at 1000 RMB is fairly punchy Uh, which is designed to keep sort of rampant speculation out of the market uh, and probably does remove a number of smaller counterparties that can't afford the sort of ante, as it were. But it does allow the bigger players maybe to move a a thinner market because there's less people in place to sort of hold it in line. So it's really been an extension of the story we were talking about last week. Just outrageous runaway pricing. There is some fundamental steel demand there, um, but I think the moves are much, much stronger than than anyone would be anticipating uh, at this point of the year. I, I think as well, um, it's worth noting that China uh, will produce a billion tonnes of crude steel this year, um, which at the start of the decade, uh, Rio Tinto were forecasting would happen in 2025 maybe 2030 and they got laughed at at the time so it happened five to ten years earlier than than they were anticipating so you know there is a fundamental story of rampant steel steel demand in China, and and as they import two-thirds of the world's seaborne iron ore it all flows through to the iron ore price but i don't think anyone was forecasting it being this strong
2: no no indeed um uh, I mean, Tom, just one thing to to ask, which is, you know, with with the CISA directly now asking the Chinese government mm-hmm. effectively to intervene um, and saying that, uh, that these prices are too high, that it's only based on speculation. Do you expect further action from the Chinese government at this point? Uh, is that something we should be looking for to try and uh, oh, to oh, try oh, and oh, tempt oh, down oh, prices oh, on the futures?
1: It's – it's hard to see where they come from on it because it's it's their steel mills that are paying up for it, and their steel mills that are bidding the price up is uh, essentially uh, it, the the oil majors, uh, oil major story. The uh, the um, the iron ore miners are just sat there with an offer, uh, and if someone's prepared to pay it, then they will take the money off their hands. Uh, it's. But but I, I think, you know, because you've got that tension in the background uh, and, and no one really, you know, so it's a massive game of chicken between China and Australia at the moment. They're both entirely dependent on one another. It's a complete codependency when it comes to iron ore. Um, and they can slap as many tariffs on all these other products as they want, you know, wine, lobster. But if they're paying $170 for iron ore, the budget deficit is being made up elsewhere. So I think you know if the Aussie government is very happy, probably with the situation at the moment. Um, but it's hard to to see where where this goes because
2: it's a straight commercial transaction. Yeah, exactly, and it, and it is just the purest form of supply and demand, exactly. So you know, if the uh, if yeah. the mills are willing to pay, they they will they will pay it. So. Um, It's worth noting those steel margins are still in the positive territory as well, so. Cool.
0: Thank you, Oz. I mean, iron ore has been one of those markets we've watched with uh, kind of amazement as it's gone against all the other commodities and the the reaction to COVID-19, and the uh, end of year is no different, but let's move on swiftly to freight. Kerry, what have we seen this week?
2: Christmas has come early indeed for the Cape ship owners. Capesize rates have surged by nearly 24% in the last week, and in a very, very unusual turn of events, this is actually being driven by the C3, that's the Brazil-China route. Uh, there are rumors of $14 being paid uh, per metric ton for that uh, for end jam dates yesterday, and some saying that nearly $15 was paid for mid-Jan dates. What makes this so odd is that seasonally we rarely see a large bounce in January on the C3 route. So it, in fact, seasonally, it's one of the weakest times of the year usually in January for the Cape market. So until we see a little more evidence to back that up and by that, I mean, I'd like to see some some printed numbers showing what kind of surge we're seeing in iron ore exports from Brazil at the moment. Um, I don't think I, I would quite be betting the house that this would last for very many weeks. But uh, you know, what is certain though, is that tonnage for prompter dates remains tight. Um, in both uh, terms of ballisters headed for Brazil, but also uh, tight in the North Atlantic as well, with healthy inquiry levels there. That has driven the paper up to uh, around 12,000 value on that Jan contract, compared to a low of $9,000 this time last week. Well, if you look at the deferred, the Cal 21 moved up from 13,250 to, to 14,000 during the week. The Panamaxes, they actually had a much stronger week last week. And while the 4TC index jumped over 12% week on week, uh, as we discussed earlier, yesterday felt noticeably weaker on the physical. Late last week, the Panas saw very healthy numbers in the Atlantic with uh, vessels off the continent in particularly high demand, while the Pacific looked very, very strong on those prompt dates, especially for no pack grain cargos and coal out of Indonesia. Uh, last, that strength has not carried through, and the January loading dates in both basins look a little better supplied with tonnage. The paper actually gave up most of last week's gains yesterday with that Jan 4TC contract closing around 9,100 this morning at 9,150 value, uh, almost in line with last Tuesday's close. While the deferred actually gave up even more with the Cal 21 closing at 10,075 yesterday. That was lower than a week ago.
0: Cool. Thank you, Kerry. And finish off the, uh, the round of this week's updates uh, on oil and uh, fuel oils. Last week, we discussed whether we we were kind of getting towards that $50 mark, and we previously noted uh, news stories from head of Vita, et cetera, going, you know, this is going to hit 50 at the end of the year. And uh, without sounding too much of a self-congratulatory, we were right. 50 has, we've gone through, we are now above that $50 mark as we head towards the end of the year. Um, we did see a bit of that fall back um, in the week because OPEC released their monthly report, which did seem kind of quite bearish on on some of the points that it was it was highlighting, especially in terms of the overall OPEC output, which rose 710,000 barrels per day in November uh, to 25.11 million barrels per day, and a lot of this was behind uh, the restarting of Libyan production uh, after their ceasefire had a three three race of war civil. Uh, Huge problems in there in terms of actually getting any of the oil out but they have now had a somewhat of a period of being able to produce and that's has pushed opec production up there's other talks uh, on jan 4th in Algeria for opec plus uh, they obviously had previously announced their 500,000 barrel cut to their cuts so they will be increasing their the production uh, and they will have that meeting again in fourth of jan so that's something definitely to keep an eye out for in terms of fuel it has taken a, a similar course to what we've seen on crude. High sulfur fuel oil prices have moved up around 10 bucks week on week, and the 0.5 uh, nearly 20 bucks. High fives have been creeping up slowly. Um, we've been up around three bucks, uh, and we're comfortably in those 80s territories. I remember, what was it? Must have been three weeks or so ago. We were going, This is now got a full handle on some of these high fives, and it was you're almost getting towards those parities all these people who've had scrubbers yeah. looking at things going that's not the kind of difference in fuel that we thought we we're going to have but we have been slowly increasing again we're in those 80s uh, a lot of this has been probably more from the weakness of a high sulfur fuel or crack than anything particularly exciting that's happening on the 0.5. Uh, also in terms of the gas oil stuff the fogos they've been falling off as well across the week uh only a, a small amount but it does seem that we are getting back into the normality for demand for gas oils and things rather than the 0.5 necessarily doing anything, although that itself is is it started to come back. Uh, we had new stories this week of uh, bunker demand in Singapore uh, jumping to 50 million metric tons possibly uh, in the first three months uh, after a 4.6% jump in sales in November. So it seems that although we're not seeing incredible things happening on the 0.5%, that return to to uh normal demand especially in a big shipping hub like singapore gives a kind of uh, more general view of what's happening worldwide as shipping comes back to normal so guys anything left in terms of any other points before we move on to our special end of the year
1: uh let's move on i'm excited to hear you sing
0: (laughs) (laughs) so let's move on to our final feature of this year the 12 commodities of christmas and our first Christmas commodity is dry FFA. Kerry?
2: Well, it's become a cliche over the years to label the Cape Size 5TC average a roller coaster, and inured as we all are to a market which can shift up to 25% in a week without anyone blinking too much. However, even for a market so volatile, this has been one of the most extreme years on record, with an annualized 30-day historical volatility of over 122% this year. Uh, That volatility drove healthy growth in the Cape size FFA market with future volumes up 9% year on year and overall dry FFA plus options volumes jumping by 16%. The growth was led by physical operators and trade houses this year, again highlighting that need to hedge physical exposure in such a volatile market. The Cape 5TC average opened the year with a fairly sharp downward trajectory, something not unusual for the big ships, which always face a seasonally weak Q1. Needless to say, as COVID fears spread towards the end of Jan, that seasonal weakness turned into a complete route, especially as China moved into lockdown. Rates neared $2,000 on the 5TC average in February, and while the market saw a brief bounce in late April as China emerged from lockdown, The global spread of the virus, paired with slower-than-expected Q2 iron ore exports from Brazil, sent rates down to the low of 2020 in May. That was $1,992 only on the Cape 5 TC average. However, in June, an unexpected problem emerged as the global COVID quarantine rules caused extensive congestion and huge delays for crew changeovers, just as Brazil upped their iron ore exports, surging those time charter average rates to uh, nearly $34,000. Rates declined a bit again in late Q3, only to see another surge in October against a further increase in Brazilian exports and a deep shortage of ballasters, with very few owners having bet on another surge in exports. Uh, this drove rates up to a peak of 34896 in late October. That was the 2020 high before beginning the sharp decline that continued right up until a week ago, accelerated by weakness in Australian coal exports, something we can discuss when we touch on coking coal. The Panamax has also faced a mixed year, with weakness on the big ships driving a very poor Q1, as the 4-TC average hit a five-year low of 3,345 in February. A surge in grain shipments helped to turn things around by Q3, which saw a gradual climb up to that 2020 peak of $15,079 in mid-August. However, the Panamax has also suffered even more than the big ships from the declining coal trade in 2020, with year-to-date, year-to-date coal shipments down nearly 10%. Although this has put a consistent cap on rates, it has not stopped strong volume growth on the Panamaxes, with Panamax FFA volumes up 11% year-on-year.
0: And for our second commodity of Christmas, Tom, we have iron ore.
1: So, iron ore started the year off the back of, by recent standards, what had been a crazy 2019. Chinese New Year was early in 2020, and as such, there didn't seem to be much action in the early months. But as the global pandemic took hold and the reaction to COVID-19 set in, the iron ore price has been one of the hottest markets of 2020. Confounding almost every analyst in the market at least one time this year, the 62% FE contract hit a low for the year of 798 US dollars on the 3rd of February, but hasn't really looked back since. The story of the year has really been that of the Chinese recovery and how strong or it was or wasn't going to be. It's safe to say that, on the industrial side at least, it has outperformed everyone's expectations from Q1. Significant government support in China, a weak US dollar and supply tightness from, from Brazil in particular has created extremely bullish conditions for the second half of this year, and particularly in Q4. The ramp up over the last few weeks, a near $40 move from the start of November to highs of $160.7 on the 11th of December has led the Chinese government to investigate market manipulation on the Dalian. And just this week, they've started conversations amidst the background of already elevated political tensions with Australia, with Rio Tinto, one of the main producers as to why the price is so high and what can be done in future to control it moving forward. In summary, a crazy year, far crazier than possibly the previous one which included a dam collapse in brazil and at one point in the year when sgx were calling iron ore the new safe haven asset we laughed it seemed silly at the time but now anyone that was long rio hp uh, bhp or fmg is laughing all the way to the back
0: okay tom we're going back to kerry for our third commodity of christmas coal
2: well cooking coal is one of the very few bulk commodities uh, that we look at which began the year higher than it ended It nevertheless experienced a hugely volatile ride and saw exchange-traded futures grow by an incredible 63% during the year. A particular favorite as a complementary product amongst iron ore traders, freight traders, and thermal coal traders, the surge of interest this year was driven by over 50 counterparties involved in OTC exchange-traded futures with more than 16 million tons cleared via SGX. Although it's the market that can supposedly only go up with a limited supply of high-quality met coal and forecast growth in the steel industry likely to continue, it ran into just one problem, China. Usually seen as the savior of the dry bulk markets, the PRC this year has seen a political spat develop with Australia – which has turned into an all-out trade war, uh, with the sole exception of iron ore, I'll bracket right there. We began the year with an index of 139 FOB Australia, seasonally low following poor economic performance in the second half of 2019 from India and other emerging markets in Asia. Despite the COVID concerns emanating from Asia, we quickly saw some strong moves up, with March paper trading up to 170 and the index breaking 161. Despite demand concerns, with close to 4 billion tons of combined coal capacity in China, a lockdown there was potentially more damaging to supply than demand. As the disease spread, however, with the attendant global economic slowdown and continued production in the majority of coal-producing regions, with Australia being the number one producer of coking coal for export, Q2 was a one-way ticket for the market, with the index eventually testing $100 in June. Q3 showed signs of optimism with the forward curve repeatedly catching a bid especially as the world was in full on iron ore bull mode the index rallied back to 140 on speculative buying and Q1 futures even broke 160 however then the china import quota was suddenly reached early and this became a blanket, blanket ban on australian imports and has sent the market spiraling back to $100 levels even briefly trading below this on the deck futures $97 was actually the low there In the midst of this, October saw a record month on futures in terms of volumes with over 2 million tons clearing. Forever optimistic, the forward curve is posed in a nice contango right now. Despite the index-only treading water above $100, Q2 today traded $145.5, and the second half is up at $153. So the market believes it is just a question of when, not if, that import ban will be lifted. And for our fourth commodity of Christmas, back to Tom on Steel.
1: Steel this year, you would think, would be all about China. And in most respects, this is absolutely true. China is on target to produce 1 billion tonnes of crude steel this year, five to 10 years ahead of the forecast that got laughed at by Rio almost 10 years ago. Amidst record steel production, China has also become a net steel importer for the first time in 11 years. And this serves to highlight the aggressive steel demand that China has seen as they recovered from their COVID-19 struggles of Q1. Amidst China's surging demand, global steel demand for the year is is expected to be down 2.4% year on year, revised up from 6.4% at the end of Q3. That reduction is served principally by a 15% reduction in the US and 15% in Europe, and as just mentioned, an 8% rise in China. The price reflection uh, sorry the price action throughout the year has reflected this roller coaster ride and the shafi rebar contract has hit lows of 3298 RMB a ton in April and has rallied all the way up to 4258 RMB at the end of November. Interestingly despite a huge fall in US demand as mentioned earlier the price action on the US HRC has painted a very different picture to that of almost every other commodity this year. The lows of the year were hit in August, as opposed to Q1. And as the US economy really grappled with an out-of-control virus with significant manufacturing shutdowns, having a massive impact on steel demand. However, whilst consumer spending and the service economy at this time is completely reeling, there's been a huge global effort to get the world's manufacturing back in action. And this has remained in place, even as service sectors in the Western world have been plunged back in and out of lockdowns. So whilst a point of note on the US side were flagging, With most other sectors, the story has really been all about China and their insatiable demand for steel. And for our fifth commodity of Christmas, we're going to myself on oil crude. Uh,
0: 2020 began to look like an explosive year. Uh, We had all those tensions in the Middle East, which sent prices above the uh, $70 mark for for Brent on the front month, Uh, and increased concern throughout the market of the stability of this region, especially as it's such a key oil and uh, shipping uh, region. All those tensions around uh, straight all those problems that we had, there was also the issue of the President of the United States Twitter feed um, and any news coming out of programs in the Middle East. It, it was just everyone was sitting there waiting for the potential for skyrocketing, skyrocketing prices um, and just a match to be thrown into to that tinderbox. But despite the, the, the coronavirus becoming a thing at the start of the year, it didn't impact oil markets until March. Uh, but in February, the increasing number of cases and the virus outside of China was starting to cause real concern about the extent that it could actually you know, disrupt, uh, especially for the demand side on things. But that moment came in March and March is when we saw that huge drop off. We, we had Brent collapsing from over f- 51 to nearly $21. And if you thought that we were over 70 at the start of the year, that was a huge Movement, I think, it was the largest drop in 125 years of OPEC's history on all those prices. So that was the moment that we saw that collapse. We had the news of numerous oil, US oil companies filing for bankruptcy. We had calls for US government to get involved, uh, but nothing held back that slide. And the entire globe, uh, you know, as, as the entire globe went into uh, their lockdowns, April did not ha- have any better, it was not a better month for, for, for crude. This was the month of negative WTI prices as everyone tried to get out of that physically delivered contract way too late, which plunged prices into uncharted territory and uh, sent commodity news sites into meltdown of, of how can we actually do negative pricings? How does that actually work? Are people going to be paying me on every other commodity now related to oil? May was the point of turnaround and we started to see prices increasing again with China seemingly sort itself out in terms of the virus, get things back to normal. We saw increasing demand from them. Lockdown measures around the globe and relaxing of OPEC uh, floating the, the the latest extension to their their cut agreement. That really helped that slow recovery of crude. And that was a trend which we saw for much of the rest of the year. With OPEC plus set to discuss short extension of its current OPEC cuts, um, you know we had all those people of when they're gonna be doing it to and, uh, and everything else we're still effectively in those cuts now but since that point we have had a, a bumpy ride back towards the uh, $50 mark which you mentioned at the start of this week's podcast OPEC have been trying their absolute best to put out new stories to, to support things and talk about further cuts even though it's a cut to a cut and then it gets very very confusing on things which they're talking about but a lot of the ground which they lose has been when it's been reported the figures of actual production especially with Libby coming back in or Iraq, which has been a, a bad example of sticking to the actual production cuts they committed to in summary this has been a, a, a topsy-turvy year for, for oil that's been characterized mainly by the huge collapse that we saw in in march and a slow recovery afterwards uh, demand has mainly come back from china and recovered and really helped things uh, move up those off the floor where we were in march But looking forward, we need to keep an eye on those countries which are producing more, those Libyans, the potential for the US uh, with Iran if they agree to a new nuclear deal, will they be able to export more again? So that's where we are, but a fragile balance in the market for the cruise going into 2021. For the sixth commodity of Christmas, we have fuel. Again, the big story at the start of the year was the introduction of IMO 2020. We had that long lead-up, all those meetings, all the news stories and speculation about what was going to happen with the legislation. We had the new 0.5% contracts listed. And in January, things really blew up in terms of what were happening. We had prices for uh, the Singhai 5, that was difference between the low sulfur and high sulfur fuel, of over 320 bucks. And we also had huge problems with the disjointed nature between futures and physical because of big physical premiums to actually get that new fuel something like 100 bucks, 75 to 100 bucks we were seeing on that. We had a situation of positive sing Fogos with 0.5 percent pricing above gas ore at the start of the year. And just to put that in context, in January, very low sulfur fuel prices were 600 bucks higher a ton in a heavily backwardated curve, but across Q1, we definitely saw these prices fall off. of course, it's dragged down by what we've discussed on crude and that huge drop that we saw in March. We also got some of those supply problems being resolved as we got into the year, people getting used to those operations uh, and the implementation of IMO 2020 and all that hype, all that hot air kind of blew out of the market. And we dropped from 600 bucks at the start of the year to nearly 200 by the end of March that some 60% of fuel's value was wiped out in three months. And the high five itself collapsed from 320 bucks to under a hundred in the same period, another mark of the, you know, the problems of the 0.5% were being solved, but also that all this speculation are going to be a thousand bucks difference between the fuels and was just never actually came about. The high sulfur fuel oil was one of the big predictions to be a, a loser of the year of 2020, and it's been quite the opposite. They thought that with overproduction, it's not needed for so much in terms of shipping, that just the whole market would be awash of this high sulfur fuel oil, uh, fuel oil. But we've seen it, great demand, especially for power production. Saudi Arabia, we talked about that news stories, I think, for a couple of weeks in the middle of the year. So it's been completely opposite. And you've seen that from what has happened in its crack market, the high sulfur crack market, which was minus 27 at the start of the year around those levels, and it's moved up closer to flat. We're nearly, well, we're nearly minus five mid-year, and we got into the minus twos at one point uh, this year as well. So that's been a real strength in terms of the fuel oil markets this year. But for most products, it has followed a similar pattern to crude, where we were fairly decent high levels at the start of the year, collapsing in March and April. And since then, it's been a very tumultuous and slow recovery. For our seventh commodity of the week, we have special guest Brandon from our tanker desk. Brandon, what have we seen this year on tankers?
3: Yeah, so tankers have seen a real roller coaster of a year. I mean, throughout the year, we've seen multi-year highs as well as multi-year lows. Like you were saying on the fuel oil, obviously the start of the year bought IMO 2020 and the 0.5. sulfur so fuel oil usage, which is obviously going to eat into owners' costs as they had to install scrubbing devices to change the fuel type, etc. But to be honest, it turned out a bit of a damp squib for freight rates, and it didn't actually have the anticipated impact that might have been fought before the start of the year. Obviously, as mentioned, it's got to be coronavirus. The end of Q1 and the start of Q2, obviously tanker freight rates absolutely boomed, driven by floating storage demand. Obviously, coronavirus, a widening crude contango, saw traders hoping to profit from a cash and carry ARB situation. And then this continued with further fun and games with obviously the negative WTI prices and the fulling cushion inventories, which you mentioned, which brought a nice boost to tanker rates, but it was short-lived we'll get onto that in a minute um since then the ongoing coronavirus lockdowns no lockdowns the general uncertainty accrued demand moving forwards has unfortunately depressed tanker rates seen a general tumble throughout q3 and 4 and the unwinding of floating storage has just really increased the supply of tankers into no real increase in cargo supply so it's not ideal uh, if you throw in some serious weather events in the us gulf which had a record number of hurricanes Obviously, we saw refinery shutdowns and tankers ballasting out of the area to avoid weather. A web geopolitics, like you mentioned, between US and Iran and Venezuela and blacklists. Uh, rebel, re, rebel missile strikes and attacks in the Red Sea. Just this Monday, we saw an attack on a product tanker, BW Rhine. Uh, a surge in pirate activity in West Africa as the weather improves, so they uh, take their chances. But we also saw pirate activity close to home. Uh, The Isle of Wight in October, we saw some stowaways on the Nave Andromeda, and that was a bit interesting. I think it was a Sunday evening. It all kind of kicked off in the Isle of Wight. So overall, it's been a pretty volatile and interesting year on the desk. Um, If we look at some data for the spot values of the year, a general trend can be seen of a strong Q1, a boost in Q2 with the floating storage, and then a general weakening from there. If we look at west on TC2, on the MRs, Q1 and Q2 world scale was around 160 average, Um, During the COVID spike, it got all the way up to 432 and three quarters in April. And then Q3, it's kind of averaged around 96 and around 80 in Q4. If we move east of Suez Canal, looking on TC5 routes, Q1 sat at 128 world scale. And then we saw a strong Q2. It went all the way up to 209. And April COVID spike of world scale, 465. And then unfortunately, there's a pretty brutal fall all the way down to World scale 72 in Q3. And now we're sitting at an average around 75 so far in Q4. Um, Of notable interest on TC5, December's actually been quite good for owners as LR1 rates have hit a six-month high, which has been driven by strong Chinese product exports. Um, If we go to the dirty side, the number one wet freight route, TD3, on the uh, VLs. As far as spot, Q1 and Q2 were both... Pretty much similar at World Scale 90. And then once again, they saw a pretty brutal fall down to 35 in Q3. And actually, they broke the floor of World Scale 30 for the first time in five years, getting to a low of 24 and three quarters, uh, driven by tankers coming off floating storage, obviously causing a huge supply and demand imbalance. With rates still a bit depressed, Q4 at the moment, we're averaging around World Scale 28. Um, during coronavirus, WorldScale did reach 2235 Um, but as I mentioned earlier, this is quite short-lived as it actually fell 60% to WorldScale 88 in just six days, and then we saw another small spike in rates when WTR went negative in April, but it fell down pretty quickly after that. Um, if you look at earnings on the VLs, <laughs> these spiked at around 300,000 a day, which is a ridiculous number, and the recent low we've seen is about 6,000, and currently we sit at about 12, so it's pretty down, unfortunately. Um, yeah, an interesting year. I don't really want to end on a bad note, <laughs> but we're seeing a relatively strong finish, actually, as dra- rates have been dragged along the bottom. So there's only room to grow. Um, we've seen further dated activity on the curve, especially on TD3 with Cal 22, 23 and 24 trading in pretty good volumes. So this further dated activity and increase in volumes and some new players coming into the market. We are, we're pretty hopeful for the new year on the desk. Uh, Sums up tankers for the year.
0: Thank you, Brandon, for that uh, tanker update. And we come to the eighth commodity of Christmas,
2: which is soybeans and John B's favourite. Kerry, you're going to update us on this one. (laughs) Well, one of the many areas people are sometimes surprised to hear we cover at FIS or Grains, and uh, this year we've had a particular focus on an exciting new contract, the CME FOB Santos Brazilian Soybean Futures. This contract only launched for trading on the 21st of September, but has already attracted a fair amount of attention. It's a cash-settled futures contract, which trades basis a premium to its U.S. counterpart, expressed in U.S. dollars per bushel. Eight contracts are currently listed, with busiest by far being the July 2021 contract. Since the launch, that July contract has been on a bit of a roller coaster ride. It's moved from a premium of $0.85 a bushel all the way up to $1.10, driven in part by a lack of rains in Brazil as the planting season started. This came against the backdrop of U.S. soybeans, hitting a four-year high in November against strong demand for feed from a recovering Chinese hog population. That's as the swine flu epidemic faded there. With the planting season almost finished, the premiums are easing back off a touch to trade $1.02 per bushel, on the July contract, but it's certainly a contract to watch as it gains a bit more traction with traders.
0: And over to our ninth Quality of Christmas, back to you, Tom, on Cobalt.
1: So, a shameless plug on this one. Uh, on the 14th of deck, deck, uh, CME launched a new Cobalt contract, uh, and FOS have been working in and around the battery metal space for the last two years and has developed significant interest for companies exposed to the fast-growing b- battery metal space and the price risk that comes with that. The contract is an in-warehouse Rotterdam standard grade cobalt and FOS is now offering its expert broking services in this space. Recent years have highlighted the price volatility in the cobalt market with highs of $45 a pound in 2018 and the market trading as low as $12 a pound mid-2019. With prices trading around $15 a pound now, the events of 2020 and the demand for a cleaner future and the build back better mantras of a number of major world powers have brought the EV horizons forward a number of years. As such, the cobalt space we anticipate becoming very active, a significant fresh demand comes into the space and we move from a net surplus of around 6,000 metric tonnes a year to a supply deficit in 2023.
0: And to our 10th commodity of Christmas, fertilisers. So the fertiliser market seemed to follow the rest of the world, lower in the wake of COVID-19, despite resilience of most agricultural markets. Uh, the first half of the year saw prices peak in March around the $270 per metric tonne level for origin markets in international urea before sliding to lows in May of 210 per metric tonne or, and less for the FOB AG Europe urea. Despite trading largely on its own fundamentals, NOLA urea followed the same peak and trough throughout the first half of the year. As we enter Q3, a typically quiet period for the year, the international market was driven by Indian buying activity, more so than in typical years. Back to, uh, back to back to uh, back purchasing intenders, quick succession drove a significant price rally in both physical and derivatives market globally from the lows in May. Prices quickly pushed back to 280 for the AG Egypt between June and August uh, before sliding throughout September to October. Further Indian appetite emerged in November, uh, sparking a light under buying activity in Europe as traders scrambled to cover previous shorts uh, with concerns of a tightness into Q1 and prices rebounded once more. As we enter the final days of Q4, we seem to be seeing a correction of prices and determination of levels uh, into the new year. As the market looks to Q1 21, European, Latin American and US activity set to drive the next uh, price moves in the market. Phosphate prices uh, were also an interesting story throughout uh, 2020 with as most fertilizer prices, phosphates also drifted lower into the end of May, but unlike urea, haven't looked back since. Prices have been steady increased throughout second half of the year on strong fundamentals Further spurred on by the U.S. DOC imposing preliminary uh, countervailing duties on Moroccan and Russian phosphate imports into the U.S. As we near the end of the year, both NOLA DAP values and Brazil MAP values are both quickly approaching the $400 mark on physical and futures markets. Uh, On CME futures, market volumes have been down slightly, around uh, 6% year on year. However, the market has seen some near record monthly volumes throughout For example, July 2020 saw the second highest monthly volume ever as markets rallied from their Q2 lows. Futures activity has dropped off into the final month of the year as we enter the holiday season, but it looks likely to pick back up again in Q1 with fresh activity expected in physical markets. Kerry, your last commodity of Christmas, the 11th, air freight.
2: Well, 2020 has arguably been one of the most formative years in the history of air freight. Massive shocks to the traditional contracting system, the rapid reduction of air freight capacity due to the collapse of airline passenger volumes, and the collapse of fis- fixed price medium. Lo- <laughs> I'm going to start that again. Yep. Well, 2020 has arguably been one of the most formative years in the history of air freight. Massive shocks to the traditional contracting system, the rapid reduction of air freight capacity due to the collapse of airline passenger volumes, and the collapse of fixed-price medium-long-term contracts throughout the market has seen huge shifts in how many in the market view pricing and risk management – when you take into consideration this widespread failure of the physical contracting system, the huge accrued airline debts, uh, IATA estimates $550 billion by year end with $120 billion in new debt just this year. The enormous swings in price, as an example, uh, the Baltic Air Index, uh, Shanghai to USA, uh, price shot up 325% in March to May and then down May to July in 2020, and the launch of the Baltic Air Freight Index in December of 2020, then it looks like a promising terrain for, uh, for increased future hedging. Large swings in global market prices and widespread disruption of supply chains have been a driving force for the adoption and maturity of the original settlement index for air freight forward agreements, leading to that launch of the Baltic Air Freight Index earlier this month. Looking forward, the interest in both the air freight index and the trading of air freight forward agreements, both by physical counterparties and now increasingly by financial players, has increased substantially. 2021 looks to be a very exciting time for this market as airlines, freight forwarders and shippers start to build the index and forward agreements into their 2021 trading strategies. And we got to our final one, the 12th commodity of Christmas, base
0: metals. So rather than taking the whole complex we'll have a quick glide over uh, copper and aluminium which have both followed the uh, general rule of 2020 uh, lows of the year in Q1 as the world started to digest there, all the things happening with covid uh, with ali aluminium touching $1421 a ton and copper getting down to uh, $2.09 per pound or both running strongly with the industrial recovery in china uh, ali recovering to 2051 and copper to 357 in the first week of December. China's aluminium imports rose eightfold versus uh, a year early in August, and US Alley demand grew significantly as brewers shifted from kegs to cans uh, to accommodate the lack of gathering and open bars, which we're all greatly annoyed at, I'm sure. Uh, Global auto sales have also recovered in the second half of the year, helping to drive some positive price action. Uh, on the supply side there have been uh, minimal cutbacks in alley production in china as producers took advantage of lower imp- import costs uh, input costs that is uh, fuel and uh, um, alumina uh, and the new capacity continues to come online so despite a forecasted recovery in 2021 the new capacity coming online is expected to uh, keep those prices in check on the copper side of things prices jumped 22% in q3 this year a highest quarterly growth since 2009 highlighting just how strong Chinese recovery has been, with the benefit of strategic stockpiling from China being added to the mix. COVID-related supply issues, uh, as seen in most global commodities, also helped drive prices in the last part of the year. Uh, the market has been tight of late, but new projects coming online uh, across the globe should uh, relieve some of the pressure, albeit some pent-up demand as the world ex-China recovers, should keep the market relatively in moving into next year. So we've had our 12 Commodities of Christmas. If you stayed with us this long, well done. Um, I, uh, of course, have to thank Brandon for coming in for this special episode. Uh, Of course, of our stalwarts of the podcast, Tom and Kerry. And for all our our other guests, our pun commander, uh, Alex, who's uh, joined us for several episodes and all of our other guests this year. If you've been listening across the year, please do share. Uh, Please do um, put it up on your other websites uh, and everything else. We will be continuing next year. But apart from that, there is nothing else left to say apart from have a fantastic festive period. I hope it is restful for everyone and that 2021 is somewhat more normal than uh, 2020. (laughs) Indeed.
2: Happy holidays, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Merry Christmas, everybody.